everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Embrace Fertility podcast slash YouTube channel. Today's episode is entitled Embracing Fertility Through Honest Fiction. We have Jolene McElwain, have I said that said that correctly, who's here to talk about her book Seidel Creek. Jolene's debut story collection is with Melville House, which came out this spring and includes several Pushcart-nominated stories. It's received a starred review from Publishers Weekly. Shelf Awareness calls it a compelling blend of nature and humanity, perfect for fans of Barbara Kingsolver's Prodigal Summer and Daisy Johnson's Fen. NPR states the 22 stories in Cyber Creek charm, surprise, and convey a deep love of the people and place. Michaelvin had long called home beautiful prose. She was born, raised, and currently lives in the Appalachian Plateau on Western PA. Just checking my pronunciations. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Hello and thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk to you. This is going to be great. Well, I've been reading Cider Creek and what really, really wanted to share this with my listeners as going through infertility, baby loss, PTSD, these are things that are just not really talked about within society and definitely not really covered in fiction. And we can learn so much from fiction and it gives us an outlet to um to explore these ideas and to learn from the characters, but in a very different way if we're just researching and Googling. So what's led you to write this book? Well, so many things. Um, initially, <clears throat> you know, I dealt with infertility in my own life and I dealt with a difficult pregnancy. And, <clears throat> excuse me, I wanted to make sure that you know, I kind of captured some of the feelings I was having around it. So initially what I wrote was kind of autobiographical and then I learned to fictionalize the stories and talk to more people who were dealing with the issues that had different issues than I had. And it became more and more apparent to me that every time I sat down to write, it seemed, uh, you know, one of my characters had dealt with a miscarriage in the past or one of my characters dealt with upsetting symptoms from a medical condition. So it was inevitable that the stories would have those issues in. The, then my dad had had a massive hemorrhagic stroke in 2007 and around the same time my son was in kindergarten. And so I began writing more stories about sort of focused on the men in my life and how they dealt with some of the things that I was dealing with or some of the things that they were dealing with in their lives, especially medical issues because of what my dad was going through. And I got to see that, you know, these medical conditions with women or men, um, you know, we all struggle and we all need to, I think, feel like we're heard whenever we're dealing with difficult times. And so it just kept flowering bigger and bigger and bigger. I kept writing more about um, the things that were going on in the lives of the people around me. Then whenever I started workshopping pieces, I started noticing interesting conversations coming up because I would mention a word like magnesium sulfate that was used when I was on um, bed rest during my pregnancy, or I would bring up the term endometriosis. And people would say, you know, do you think you should keep that term in there? Do you think you have to like define it or what? And I, and I struggled with that because I thought, 
wow, I didn't realize some of these terms are just simply not common knowledge, even with, you know, women, even with women, you know, my age, even now, there are so many terms that people aren't familiar with, because they're just not out there. They're not out there in the world. And that says something. And I taught literary theory for years. And one of the, um, when I was teaching feminist theory, I remember one of my students being really, really upset by the fact, not what she was finding in literature, but what she was not finding in the stories that she read. And we, every year I would have that conversation with my students in literary theory that sometimes the more important question is what is not included in a story than what is. So I was really, really clear um, as I put the collection together that I wanted to make sure I kept medical terms in. I wanted to make sure that I showed, you know, um, realistic portrayals of people dealing with mental illness and medical issues. And I'm really, really happy with the book because I had a wonderful agent and a wonderful editor who had the same vision in mind. So I was really lucky actually. And I think that's what's so refreshing as well about your writing is the fact that like talking about endometriosis, for example, like when I was diagnosed as a teenager, I had never heard of it. And so it was this big, long, you know, ridiculously spelt word that it was like, I've never heard of that. I have no, no information whatsoever about it. And so also just talking about it and bringing and bringing in the words instead of it just being I'm like, and she had a procedure it's like well yeah label that describe it what is that it's like these are terms that when you're going through infertility you then become accustomed with and becomes the language and then I'm noticing that in my support group and a new lady will come in and we might all be sort of using sort of the IVF lingo and then we're like well hang on we need to back up a little bit and describe what these acronyms are to talk about things and describe what they are so it's really nice to actually see that in in print as well and not shy away from some of what these things are right because so many people when I was little um you know I'm in my 50s so when I was little people talked about women's problems like yeah. women's problems and I even remember whenever my my grandmother had died um of a complicated post miscarriage situation and I knew she died of women's problems. Well, that didn't help me with, you know, hereditary issues. We needed to look it up and find out what it actually was. And she probably had endometriosis given the diagnosis that she had, although that word doesn't show up anywhere. But um, so that's even problematic when it comes to finding out about the history of the women that have died before us. What did they die of if they were complicated women's issues? We need to know that, you know, endometriosis affects 190 million uh, people, you know, um, I think that it's kind of a crime that we're not talking about that diagnosis now a lot more than we are. Although I would say that lately, because some movie stars in both the UK and the United States and around the world have come out and said that they have this issue, it has brought a lot more information to the table, but it's still unknown. I still find myself explaining what it is to people. And I wasn't diagnosed. Um, I think it took almost a decade for me to be diagnosed. I was diagnosed with just about everything but endometriosis. And then finally, I was diagnosed with it. And then I had um, stage four, I had open surgery, I had a laparoscopy and then turned into open surgery. And then I was stage four. And then I was told that I could either go on Lupron to put myself into um, menopause or I could try to get pregnant. And I ended up getting pregnant 
ended up having my son, but it was a very complicated pregnancy. And I do wonder if the complications from the pregnancy were because it was so soon after I had had the surgery. So that's another issue. You know, some of these surgical procedures that are done can also inhibit pregnancy. And people don't know about that either, which, or the hormonal um, decisions people make can also inhibit pregnancy. So it comes into dealing with infertility then more in more more and different ways that we're not aware of. So it's really complicated, but it doesn't have to be if we would talk about it more, I think. So I'm so glad that you're doing this. And there are so many um, fertility doulas and other people that are out there, you know, really helping and supporting people because I found that one of the things in my stories I wanted to do, especially with the, like the title story, Seidel Creek, it's a single father who takes care of his daughter with her diagnosis. You know, it's, it's not the mother, it's not the older sister, it's not the aunt. Although the person that does find the healing for her is a sort of medicine woman in their community who people think is a witch. Um, but I did want to make it clear that, you know, this affects everyone in our lives. And so I made that main character's father be the one that actually helps her with it. So and that's what's so interesting as well is it's not it's not just women's issues the the issues and the the medical conditions that we as women may be struggling with impact our partners impact our fathers impact our sons and it infiltrates it's something especially with endometriosis if you've got severe endometriosis and that's every month your your health and your well-being is impacted that does touch the whole family exactly so I'd love it if you would read us a section of that opening story. Oh, sure, sure. Okay, so this one, um, this comes at about, I guess, the middle of the story, Seidel Creek. And I'm going to read a little bit about how the young girl, she's just started her menstrual periods and her mother has um, run away from the family and gone to find Jesus up north at a uh, in a different area. And the father is left to sort of take care of her. They're both anglers. And so he tries to use fishing and dealing um, in dealing with her medical issues. Five bleeds later, I got hints when it would come on. Angry at my colic, lonely, fish looked sad. It scared me, this thing happening to me. Hurt all over, made me slow and run down. Maybe flows off a little, dad said. Maybe it'll straighten out. Though he told me that before mom left us for Jesus and moved to a place in upstate New York to be near his grace and love, she'd had the exact same kind of pains. He wanted to take me to crazy Miss Jean for a tincture, but I was so scared of her that I refused to go. So again, he took me fishing. We caught our limit quick, let the gutted fish soak in salt water in the sink all day. After supper, dad said, let's have a Sunday. I couldn't bring myself to grab the maraschino cherry jar that always sat next to the salmon eggs after I spotted the canned plums. They looked too much like the clots that had dropped from inside me. Hot fudge is plenty, I said. In those five months, I'd learned to hate all things red. That frightening leaking out that came, came again just as I was halfway done with the Sunday, sending the bowl clanging into the sink and me running to the bathroom. When I sat on the toilet, I imagined my own eggs sliding to the bottom of the porcelain while I peed. You okay? Dad said from behind the bathroom door. I'm fine, I said, shoring up my voice box to keep at bay any sound of stupid crying. After eight bleeds, Dad told me to head out to the side or wade in the water some. Might cure from me from bleeding so much. But I worried the sidle couldn't help me, and I didn't want to use the creek wrong like Mrs. Turner 
didn't want to spook the fish away. He said, regular season's over. They've slowed down by now. Cramps woke me. Cramps kept me home from school. Headaches weighted my eye sockets. Snow came early. I tried to think about the cool creek water, how oxygen would be swelling, how trout hens would be building nests in the gravels deep in the reds to home their eggs. A year more had passed when dad said, I can't have you suffer and went to crazy Miss Jean without me. She said it was a malady no one aspired to study for a long time. She said she had it too, till she went through the change. She said people still think it's fake, a lie. She told him what kinds of stones to find at the cider and gave him a bottle of paragoric, told him to mix it with sugar. Tastes like black licorice gone bad, he said, and held the tiny whiskey glass to my lips. I forced myself to drink it. Warm, warmer, lamps eased, eyelids drooped, rest came until pain wrinkled again. Miss Jean told dad to search for a keen doctor who will listen. She said it might take years. She gave the awful thing a name, endometriosis, 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 dad said. I repeated it. It didn't sound half as mean as it was. Dad said, it's a dirty, rotten shame. So some of that is autobiographical because when I was small, they didn't know I had endometriosis. Um, I went to my um, pediatrician and they prescribed paragoric, <laughs> which you know was wild for that time. Um, and we mixed it with sugar water and I drank it and it did help ease the cramps that I had. And then, um, you know, my dad, when he would talk about it, he didn't know what to do to help me. And he would always say, it's dirty, rotten shame. It's dirty, rotten shame that you have to go through this. Um, so those are the most autobiographical parts of the story. But yeah, it took a long time for me to be diagnosed. And I know that happens with a lot of women. So when I was in x-ray school then, um, I went to x-ray school before I went to college to teach English. And I was from a working class upbringing and my dad wanted me to make sure I had, I was going to go for an art or, or writing degree. And he said, you know, you want to make sure you have a real job. So I went for, uh, to be an x-ray technologist. And while in that school, we learned about every system of the body, but when we particularly were learning about the tests that were done for ovarian cancer, endometrial cancer, um, uterine cancer, and for infertility, I was really zoned into that. I couldn't believe some of the tests that they had been doing and some were sort of barbaric at that time it was in the night uh is in the late 80s and um so I was really intrigued by it and we had to write a paper for our class and I decided to write a paper on the diagnostic tests that were done for infertility and there weren't that many but there was one in particular called a hysterocelpingogram and um I was intrigued by the very like you said very long word difficult to pronounce some of these words that are used for women's issues, which is interesting. And um, so I made sure I put that term in another piece that I had written. I can read that later. But um, that that actual word was something that the editor at Cincinnati Review mentioned to me. She says, oh, I saw that word, hysterosalpingogram. I know what that means, you know. And so it was interesting that that they didn't tell me to edit that word out, you know, and I didn't know if that would happen. But um, when I was in x-ray school, again, I when I did the research for this paper, still not knowing I had endometriosis, I went to an infertility clinic to interview people to find out about which kinds of procedures were done before they got to the point where they did a hysterocelpingogram. And I remember looking around the room at this, at this infertility clinic and seeing women and men from all different, different ages, different 
um, races, different class, you know, communities. It was affecting everyone, and that had such an impact on me. And I didn't know at the time that I was going to be years later finding out I was also dealing with infertility. So it was a real eye opener for me to. Um, you just wonder why things work out the way they do, like why I was so drawn to it. Somehow, probably I knew there was something going on, but who knows? It's like yeah, it's like you follow the breadcrumbs. It's like something is pulling you to, yeah, research that, but you're not sure what. Exactly. But yeah, I found like reading that story as well was really really connected with me because I was the same as as a teenager I had these you know horrific periods that would I you know, had to stay in bed didn't want to but had to would be at school if they came on and would just yeah would have to get to the bathroom and that was sort of the only place it kind of felt safe and relieving but then you had to go back to class and and kind of dealing with that like you said as a child this wasn't like when I was a late teenager. This was like, you know, really early on. And it was very much just, oh, you know, it's bad periods. Takes, you know, takes some ibuprofen. There you go. It wasn't, it wasn't really talked about. It wasn't, it was a thing, you know, and it was the thing that's kind of like, you know, women's issues and sort of quite down in school. And it's like, even within your sort of friendship group everyone just kind of go oh yeah that's normal I have that too but obviously the level of pain I was experiencing was not normal and I've since learned that isn't the amount of pain other people and they were maybe uncomfortable in you know experiencing discomfort not physical excruciating pain (laughs) and so I think as well we were taught teaching you know girls see phrasing it right so we're not actually scare the hell out of them but knowing that that like it's not okay to be feeling like that it's not normal because I think that's the kind of gist it's kind of like oh period pain oh period pain period, period pain. you know it's kind of like sort of period pain and it's like well no period discomfort yes little little bit of cramping but if there is pain that is then your body saying there is something wrong and let's find out what's in it and how to help with that pain Exactly. And that's so hard because even with pregnancy, because we don't have a lot of information out there, um, we don't even know sometimes during a pregnancy or sometimes during trying to get pregnant, these different feelings we have, different pains we have, different issues that we feel in different parts of our body. You know, people say, oh, yeah, you're pregnant, you'll feel all kinds of things, or oh, yeah, you're in labor, you know, you'll feel. But I, when I was in labor, I had. An abruption. So I was having pain between contractions, you know, but people were like, oh, you know, it's, this is normal. This is normal. And so mm-hmm. I think that's one of the problems too. And it, and, and as women towards each other, you know, sometimes we dismiss it as well, not knowing exactly like you said, well, I have my period and I'm not have my pain yet yeah, hurts a little, but she's just overly complaining. That's a very hard mountain to climb. And I think I think doctors are doing much better with it, with allow at figuring out ways to sort of assess the level of pain, but we have a long way to go. And tell us a little bit more about, about your story and what led you to, and, and I'd love you to talk more about as well as um, writing as like a healing tool. I know you've used a particular therapy technique to write one of your stories. Could you tell us about that as well? Yes. So, um, so several of the stories in the collection, there is a story called Seed to Fool that is about um, a stillbirth. There is a story called Shell that is about a woman with multiple miscarriages and she and her husband um, 
they try to figure out the futures of people by reading futures on the eggs of red-winged blackbirds. And they're both sort of traumatized um, in their lives and they deal with their trauma by trying to make order in their life with that. So that story has that same um, theme. And then there's another story called Seeds toward the end of the collection that is about an older man whose wife's just passed away and he's looking back on their lives and he's looking back on the, the issue that she had. She wasn't able to conceive children. So there are several stories throughout the book that take on an issue some way around infertility, around pregnancy. But the one story that is very much autobiographical in my book, um, strangely, um, is called You Four Are the One. And what happened was when I was pregnant, after I had been diagnosed with endometriosis after 10 years of sort of not knowing, and I had my surgery, I got pregnant. When I was at my 22nd week, I went into preterm labor and then was given breathing. And then I was, I seemed to be okay. And then I went into preterm labor again, um, at about the 25th week. And I had to go in for a weekend of magnesium sulfate at the time that was the, that was what they used. This was in 2000. And um, I then was released from the hospital and all in all, I was on bed rest, strict bed rest for about 13 weeks. And my son was delivered five weeks early. Um, so during that time when I was on bed rest and then in the aftermath of having my son, which like I said, it was an abruption, it was an emergency C-section. I was diagnosed with, um, a year later, I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, but it was called particularly postnatal um, PTSD. And I had a lot of help from some amazing therapists. Um, so during that time, um, a couple of the therapists that I had had would mention, you know, it might help to write about these triggers that you have, these memories that you have. And every time I sat down to try to write about them, I was re-triggered. And so that's something that I would like sort of caution your listeners on. Sometimes people will tell you that thinking it's a good idea. Like if you write this down, if you talk you about it. Yeah, get it all out. But sometimes it can be re-triggering. So it's really good to have someone that you can confide in, either a therapist or someone else that could help you through that process. Because I was lucky I had that. One of the therapists in particular had mentioned um, that there were other forms of um, therapy for people be with PTSD. Like I dealt with cognitive behavioral therapy. And that was really helpful. It was mostly talking through things and being accurate in my memories. Um, but there is this one technique called recon that um, Courtney Armstrong is a, is, is a therapist that deals with people with PTSD and she deals with trying to make people more resilient, not suffering, trying to figure out ways that you can not just cope with it, but actually come out on the other side and feel pretty empowered by what you've gone through. And so she has this um, book out that's um, about reconsolidation therapy. And what I did is I, I had bought the book um, and because one of my therapists had suggested it. So I read it and I was, I thought, oh my goodness, this technique is so much like how we normally revise a story. You know, we, we get that gut draft down and it doesn't, it has gaps, you know, it doesn't have all the information, but you're getting there. And then you go back into it and you deepen it and you deepen the scene and deepen it. And then you think of alternatives like, well, this person's writing the story, but what if this other person wrote the story instead? Or what if it came from this point of view? Or what if it was told in first person versus third person? So you start manipulating the narrative and changing it and altering it somehow. 
And in reconstructive, this kind of uh, reconsolidation therapy, that's exactly what they teach you sort of to do. You take this memory, you remember that difficult trauma and for about 10 minutes, I guess there's this liminal stage where you can sort of rewire the narrative in your mind and you can listen to music or watch a movie or look at art or you can write about it. And that's what I chose to do. So I thought I'm going to do it. I'm going to try to write my bed rest story. I wasn't going to write the birth because I thought that would be too triggering. So I wrote my bed rest story. Well, when I was going through bed rest, I was, I was being given steroids weekly. And so because of that, and I'm sure some of your listeners, if they've gone through this kind of pregnancy, would know that sometimes you have to be isolated with certain kinds of medications when you're pregnant or certain because of certain conditions when you're pregnant because you're more susceptible to um, immune issues, immunity issues. So that was my case. So I was only really allowed to be around my two Labrador retrievers, my husband and my mom, and my dad would occasionally visit. And other than that, I didn't see anybody for those 13 weeks. I would talk on the phone. That was about it. So for my story, I rewrote it to have the Cinta John's character who would be just completely taken care of by her whole neighborhood. There would be four little girls in her neighborhood that would come by and visit with her and sit with her and talk with her and entertain her. There would be someone to help with the dog to take the dog out because that was an issue I had. I had older dogs and they had to be let outside and I couldn't walk them anymore because I was stuck in a recliner. my husband was a wonderful husband and a very kind of Mr. Fix-It kind of guy. He's similar to the husband in the story. I did not have any grandparents alive when I was pregnant. So I decided I'm going to create Nana, who is a very superstitious grandmother, who is also very helpful in helping the character in my story get through the situation of her bed rest. So it was just the best experience I think I've ever had with writing because I was able to completely rewrite the story the way I wish it had gone. And I would completely recommend that to anyone dealing with infertility, dealing with endometriosis, dealing with difficult pregnancies, dealing with stillbirth, anything that they can possibly go through as as a woman in their life that they are struggling with and people don't seem to really want to talk with you about it because it makes them uncomfortable, you can rewrite that story, you know? And it it doesn't ever take away from the original story, but what it did do for me, strangely, is I used to have, for my son's 22 years old, and I would have nightmares still to until about three years ago I would have nightmares about being on bed rest not being able to leave the chair I was in or the room I was in um and those were sort of recurring for me since I wrote the story I haven't had one of those dreams I mean I probably will again as we know with PTSD it'll sort of rear its ugly head at the most horrible moments sometimes but at least for this little bit of time being I've been really enjoying that you four are the one that story really helped me a lot and I hope that helps other people to hear that because I really think it's a wonderful tool so the book is called I think reconsolidation therapy I don't know the whole um, title but her name is Courtney Armstrong and it's just wonder it was really helpful and it's such as one of my favorites favorite stories in the book because all the way through you're obviously you know willing this pregnancy to be successful and because it's from the point of view of the of the girls as well young and girls being like we are going to save this baby like they're taking on that kind of ownership of of being part of that community and being like what we what we can do and what we can contribute 
matters, um, which is so lovely. I would love if you could read us a section of that story. Oh, I certainly will. And I did want to say that in that story, too, one of the interesting things about the fact that Lainey, the main character who's, um, who's, point of view the story is told from I grew up with three young girls the four of us were inseparable and we would take on a mission you know in the summer we would always have these things that we had got involved in and we never had this situation but um they were the way I set them up in the story is they had just seen the menstruation movie in elementary school and they were going from fifth grade to sixth grade and they were hearing the women in the community and the men in the community talking about these terms that had to do with this difficult pregnancy. So that too is in the story. And a lot of times I capitalize them because they're so important to those girls because they're very new, like even strict bed rest. What does that mean? What does it mean to be recumbent, you know, and things like that and oxytocin, what does it mean? So I tried to do that throughout. And that was a nice point of view to use because then I could show how these terms were not familiar and really should be. And there's one particular scene where the husband's explaining the magnesium sulfate situation. So I'll read some of this so you can get an idea of what the story was about. It is called You Four Are the One. What Cinta Johns needed was someone to make her tea after her husband left for work so she didn't have to get up from the recliner. Steep it for exactly three minutes, add one tablespoon of clover honey. No more, just one tablespoon. Miss Jean promised it would help her with congestion. What Cinta Johns needed was to have someone rub the fading, chipping, blood red paint from her toenails, paint them a color that would not remind her of all the things that could go wrong. What Cinta Johns needed was someone to walk her dog Sheppy four times a day or more if possible. Sheppy, at 13, had an active bladder like Cinta in her condition. 33. No way could she get down on her knees and scrub the floor if Sheppy had accidents, and she wouldn't ask anyone else. No, no, she couldn't ask anyone to clean up her dog's pee. What she needed was someone to take the wet clothes out to the line. She loved the scent of summer tree bark, grass cuttings on her shirts and sheets, and if it threatened to rain, to please, please quickly take them down, fold them if they were properly dry, put them all away neatly, more than ever before, she needed everything to be organized and categorized and ordered. What Cinta Johns needed was for people to come into her home or sit with her under the big oak and entertain her if she was sad, take her mind off the baby for bits of time, which was strange because it's all we could possibly think about that baby, how long it would live inside Cinta Johns, how big it was getting, how much its lungs had grown, Everyone all kinds of worried about those lungs. What Cinta Johns needed, our mom said, was much less pressure to deliver this baby healthy and ready for this world. Losing four babies in seven years, too much pressure for this one. We were sent to help in any way we could. But we, Tessa, Dawn, Billy, and me, Lainey, were only four neighbor girls who just watched the menstruation movie, but didn't know all the possible snags and hitches of pregnancy. It was the summer before our sixth grade year and we had to steady ourselves, to not be dizzy, to not be nervous, to pace ourselves with all these new words we'd heard from the eavesdropped conversations of our teachers who were sent to John's old friends, from the mouths of our moms and the neighborhood women who'd been closely monitoring her pregnancy. They'd said things like, she's sure to lose this one too. And what a pity. And it's just not in the cards for her to be a mother and made it almost full term with that last little one. But then they talked of a dilated cervix, 
contractions and preterm labor, steroid shots, some drug called breathing, and all these awful ideas about undeveloped lungs and brains. What Cinta Johns needed was someone to hold her hand. She told us that when we showed up at her house, her eyes wet and red, just hold my hand for a minute, and we could do that. Yes, for sure, we could do that. That first week of her strict bed rest, we stood at the base of her old black oak, the lichen-dressed side, hemmed in around Cinta Johns, captured by her smallish hill of a pregnant belly, we waited quiet as cobwebs as she stilled herself within the cradled macrame hammock. Her manicured hands, matte pink nail beds, arctic white tips rested over our filthy ones, nails jam-packed with the blackest soil from filching night crawlers to ensure a trout harvest for Cinta Johns and her growing baby inside her. She guided our palms across her belly, said, wait, 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 the baby's readying to kick. I'll stop there. And then there's another section um, with the husband who is working on getting the, um, the nursery ready and everyone's concerned he won't get it finished in time. And so this, at this point in the story, um, Cinta, like me, had gone through a magnesium sulfate weekend and everyone was so worried that the baby, that she was gonna lose the baby for sure during this episode. And so he's left back at home to work on getting the nursery ready. We all had to wait all day to hear what had happened. She'll be fine. She's real strong, Cinta's husband said, flashed a solid smile, not one bit fake. The new medicine they're giving her at the hospital lowers calcium in her uterus's cells, I guess, to stop contractions. Magnesium sulfate. Oh, I said. The four of us clomped down the rickety wood steps behind him. But it heats her up like a fever or something, one of his one of the side effects. Something? Is it a fever or not? We stood in their basement, smelled like some cross between fresh cut pine boards, mice droppings, dirt and pennies, spider webs everywhere, a drip drop sound coming from somewhere. He screwed the blowtorch into the propane canister. His hands shook like Cinta's did on that first medicine, the breathing. I noticed he was sweating like crazy too. He was not the certain kind of handsome like on TV shows and magazine ads. It was his kindness that drew me to watch his face as he told us about Cinta's condition. It's what had drawn me too to his broad shoulders and muscular arms, especially when he lifted Cinta and carried her through the house, up the stairs two nights before while we ran ahead, turned down the bed for her. She laughed, said, I'm not an invalid, but he said, Doc wants you recumbent and we're working hard to keep you that way. He winked at us then, told us how much he appreciated our help. And in the story, the girls are just thrilled that they they have this thing that they're doing, but they also notice at some point in the story that, you know, when they go back to school in the fall, that they've done this amazing thing, but there's no announcement about it on the, yeah. on the announcements. The announcements are about how the little league teams fared during the summer with their competitions and who won which awards and she's pretty upset about that so she tries to go to her teacher to say that this should be announced that she's <laughs> that they were helping a woman all summer try to keep the baby safe so but I do think that for me it was like I said it was just so refreshing to be able to look at it from the point of view of young girls looking at pregnancy because I felt that way I had when I was growing up there were a couple of people pregnant in our neighborhood and it was fascinating and scary, you know, and the worst thing was that you didn't know all the information, no matter how the outcome turned out. It was that not knowing and it was hard too when you didn't, you found that not everyone wanted to talk about it. So I hope that's changed 
now, you know, this many years later that more people are talking about it. But I have a tendency to think that still pregnancy is kind of, um, you know, some people really don't talk about it as much as they, they could. And they certainly don't talk about miscarriages as much as they could or stillbirths as much as they could. And I think that that's difficult. Like I said about the literary theory class, what's not said and what's not talked about is really telling. I think I'm saying like one in four pregnancies results in a miscarriage, but until you have a miscarriage or you have like a close friend who's you know open enough to talk to you, you don't know that. Yeah. And then and so you think it's this like oh, oh my god, this thing that only very few people have to experience. And then you actually talk about it, and almost every woman I know has had at least one miscarriage. And yeah. you're like, and obviously the you know the the field I'm in and the the women that I'm in contact with, but in terms of like my friends and my family and you know wider community as well, this is so many people, and I think that's what's so beautiful about your stories is is giving them light because so often in fiction it's like, and then they got married and then they had a baby, right. yay, and that's that blip that's like glossed over as if that's just like a given. Right. Whereas actually this period of time for some of us can be years, it can be a decade for some people of deciding they want to become a parent to when they actually get to become a parent. And I was talking with a client this morning about the fact that there's no real label for this period of time. There's the word infertility or infertile, which labels when you've been, you know, trying to conceive for a, a year with unprotected and not got pregnant. And it's sort of that label from then until you get pregnant is infertile infertility but actually it really doesn't describe because what if you then get pregnant and you're pregnant for a bit and then you're not pregnant at the end and then you're like well then I go back into the this or pool but there's no kind of word like if we were if we decide we want to become a doctor or whatever qualification we want we decide and then we become a student or we become an apprentice or we become we're given a label we're given a an identity of what we're doing and who we are during that period of time but when it comes to infertility there's no it's like oh we're trying to conceive it's been like trying to conceive for like five years it just trying to you know it's like you you know you don't try and pass your driving test if someone says like oh, I'm trying to learn to drive it's like well are you are you really trying you're trying to learn to drive you say I'm learning to drive exactly <laughs> Yeah. And because we don't have that term, I mean, then it makes this moment feel like you're, you're not quite completely in the human condition, you know, because you're, you're not defined some way. I mean, I, I don't like to box people in, but I never really thought of it that way, that there is no real term that you can fall back on. That's not, that doesn't have negative connotations attached. Yeah. There's, there's no kind of like that 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 word that shows like the potential it's like oh we're potential parents that that's kind of what's happening is because at any at any point you could then become pregnant and that that could be the thing but it's yeah it's like you're outside of society that's what we were discussing this morning that my client was saying she feels like you know there's the women that have decided to be child free and there's the women that decided to be mothers who are now mothers right and then there's this like and then there's, there's her and she's in the middle so we were talking about identity and about her she doesn't need to be there or there she's here in the center of her world and she can pick who is in her world and she yeah. doesn't need to be 
in these groups but it is we're kind of outside of society when we're we're in this state because it's it's not talked about and it's not normal and because there's generally not people close in our life going through the same it's about going out and finding your community and finding other people who are going through similar um rather than it just being oh and I know someone who's been through this so that's my go-to person exactly and that's what's helped you know we give social media a bad rap but you know for me I if in the year 2000 if I had had the kinds of support communities like you're doing and other people are doing with podcasts and with um, Facebook groups it would have been so much more I mean it's still equally painful and still equally frustrating and and scary but when you have other people with you in that journey I mean my goodness you don't have to feel so alone which is another added layer that alone and defeated you know sometimes that comes in and it shouldn't be you know it shouldn't be that you're either successful if you have a baby or you're not successful if you're unable to have a baby and I even noticed that that carries on even after I thought you know I'd gone through infertility I had people constantly asking me if I was going to get pregnant was I going to have kids what was happening you know people are very intrusive that way so sometimes the people that you'd like to talk to about it aren't the people who are asking you the questions yeah um, but then even after I had my son, you know, there, there were the questions about, you know, did you breastfeed and how wonderful that is? And I wasn't able to breastfeed after an emergency surgery. Many women aren't allowed to, you know, or aren't, I shouldn't say they're not allowed. They're not capable for whatever reason, different medications or different issues. They're not able to do the breastfeeding. So that's even a difficult situation. And I remember that happened to me and I had written a um, essay about that in for craft um, magazine. And one of the things that was so upsetting was that years later, I found out that I could have probably three months after I had my son tried again to um, the relactation process that you can go through. I had no idea. Again, there wasn't information out there. This was the year 2000, 2001. And I'm so grateful for the things that you're doing. I mean, I can't tell you enough. I, I've watched your, I, I've watched and listened to your podcast and I thought, wow, how I wish I would have had someone in my life at that time, because I wasn't even in therapy at that time. I only went into therapy after I was diagnosed with PTSD. So it, you really need support. You really need um, kindness and uh, people who can appreciate what you're going through to, to help you through that time period and, and beyond, you know, throughout all the process of, even if you become a parent, it doesn't stop then. I remember whenever we had our son, my mom had helped us when we came home from the hospital and she left and she was gone for, I think, 10 minutes. And my husband was like, I think we need to call her back, you know? So it keeps going. But these forums and these podcasts are so, so helpful. Um, so thank you for what you're doing. I, I just can't say enough how much that means to me as someone who went through it and continues to go through different things, including menopause. And you just need more people to talk to. And that's that's the joy, isn't it, of social media and podcasts and being able to share stories and what we've been through by sharing that and talking about it and having these conversations that other people can learn because there'll be people listening who have never heard that yeah, there's this option. If you if you can't breastfeed for you know physical reasons, your body is unable to lactate at that time, the things that you can do to get that support, because sometimes in the hospital environment as well their main concern is we need to get this baby fed and we need to get this woman out of this hospital and back at home as quickly as possible so for them they're like formula here we go their focus is not oh you know in a few weeks time 
once your body is healed, once you've recovered, and then, but yeah, it's so simple. It's just that tiny, it's that one little sentence, that tiny gem of information. But then if you're interested, you could go, you could research, you could get that support. So if people, it's like planting those seeds, isn't it? Of like, oh, these are the things that are out there. And also that, um, like really advocating for yourself and really being like, in an ideal world, this is what I want. And sometimes we kind of talk, well, you can't have that. So you settle for this. But it's like, say even sometimes just saying out loud, well, this is in my ideal world, this is what I want, because it might be possible. Like right. at that point, if someone had said like 12 weeks in, and you were like, you know, I really wish I was breastfeeding. Like if you just spoken, if you just had the conversation with the right person, you're like, I really, really wish I've been able to breastfeed. And they'd be like, you still can. If just yep. that one person had had that conversation and you got that information and filtered through, whereas if you'd never voiced out loud, this is what I want, this would be the ideal. Nobody yeah. knows that's what, what you want. Yeah, and I know that with fiction, what's really helped me a lot is that these issues that are so important to me, like I bring up the relactation because I have a story where a woman's at a beauty shop and she's talking to other women in the salon about her situation. She finds out about relactation because I think that, um, you know, we do learn so much from fiction uh, because sometimes there is an emotional truth in fiction that you can put in there that you can't put in there with your um, nonfiction pieces. I think for me, um, the book Seidel Creek is, is a heavy book with a lot of dark stories and a lot of them don't have happy endings. Um, but I think that the most important thing that the book that I was, I was trying to do is show that in the most surprising circumstances, you can have these human connections with people and you can say just the right thing sometimes to someone else that they really need to hear, or you can do the, just the right action that someone really needs that they didn't even know they needed. And so I think that that's what, um, what really made me happy that I was talking to you because when I've listened to your conversations, I saw that you could tell when there was sort of this light bulb moment that someone heard something you had said, or they had said something that made you think of a client you had had. And I thought, yeah, this is exactly what we need. We need fiction. We need podcasts. We need all of these ways that we enter into these conversations that are very difficult and fraught with so many emotions. We put the emotion of shame. We put the emotion of um, failure on top of things that have no business having those connections. You know, we're, we're just human beings. We're just trying to get through this the best way we can. And I hope that in this part of, especially in the fertility conversation, I just hope there are more voices, especially uh, too with fiction writers. I hope they take on these subjects and aren't afraid to put the words out there, the specific medical words, but also to put the ideas out there that there's hope in whatever situation you find yourself in there really can be but the hope comes in the fact that you have other people you can connect with yeah and that's what's so beautiful as well is like it's not a collection of stories going oh and everyone's because if it was that every if every 22 stories had a happy ending I think it would leave the reader feeling really like this feels this feels off like statistically <laughs> this yeah. what so I think it's and I, I think it's also it's so lovely being able to read pieces as well that really move you and give you that outlet to to feel angry to feel sad to feel grief and to connect with those parts of you that maybe maybe there's no other way maybe for some of my listeners reading fiction privately themselves is the way that they can connect with those things that they they don't feel able to speak to a therapist or a friend or 
to open up at a support group they're just they're not there yet or maybe they'll never get to there but to be able to connect through a story with characters with fictional characters but that are living very real lives and situations and struggles that would then allow them to yeah to have that that release and that that outlet that maybe isn't there in your boy Thank you so, so much for today. So how can people get a hold of Seidel Creek? Okay, so Seidel Creek can be found wherever you buy books. Um, I do have a website, jolenemacawain.com, where I have buttons for all the different ways you can buy it. You can go to the Melville House website to purchase it as well. Um, and also, if you want to find more, find out more about some of the stories, I occasionally do posts on Instagram or on Twitter where I give some background about how some of the stories uh, originated. And there's also a reader's guide that's available through the Penguin Random House um, website under Seidel Creek. You can download a reader's guide. But I would really, really like to hear from people who've read the stories, and especially if people from you know your podcast, your listeners have read particular stories about that have those themes and they have questions or they want they have ideas but they don't know how to get their ideas into print they want to write about these subjects they need advice even on where to take classes i have so many resources i could give them so there's a contact page on my website and then you can also dm me through any of the social media platforms because i'm on facebook twitter and um trying to do blue sky but i don't even know what that is <laughs> But anyway, so definitely feel free to contact me. I'd love to hear from you. And I really encourage people to try to find the stories that have these themes, read them, and also write your own because it really, really did help me. And I think by um, bringing the topics up in my workshop, I I think that all of, all of the women that were in the workshop with me, we all kind of got to write even more stories than we thought we were going to. So I thank you so, so much for giving me this platform to talk about Seidel Creek. And I really, really hope that it can help even one person to get through the very difficult times we sometimes find ourselves in. But just to know there's someone else out there, I think really helps. So thank you so much. And thank you for reading excerpts of the book. That was really just really lovely to get like a, a feel for your writing because you write so beautifully and so powerfully. So thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. Oh, it's been a total pleasure for me too. Thank you so much. I'm going to put all of the details below in the show notes. So there'll be links that you can go through and get in touch. And if you haven't already subscribed, please do to be the first to know when a new episode comes out. And if you're not yet on my mailing list, come and join embracefertility.co.uk for lots of fertility freebies. Thank you very much.